you here staying with me, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 6. The book of Genesis chapter 6. We're in a series. This is, uh, in essence, an Advent series that we're doing. Uh, but what it is, is we are looking at, um, the technical term would be kind of a biblical theology of the covenants. We're looking at the covenants and how they form the backbone of Scripture. They not only help us understand the Old Testament, but they help us understand the New Testament as well. And we're looking at them and we're leading up to help us understand um, the wonder of who Christ is and the wonder of provision. Last week, we looked at the covenant of creation. And so last week, we looked at, the, at how God formed creation. We saw, uh, as Genesis 1, we saw presented in uh, God's creative acts in seven days. And what we saw within there is everything that is made is made by God and for God. In the end, what he saw was it was made good. And then what we saw in the midst of his garden, which represented his presence there amongst his creation, this garden of Eden, he placed this image bearer, Adam, and this image bearer was to reflect God's glory throughout creation, to expand the garden, to fill the earth with image bearers, to fill the earth with the glory of God, in essence, through this partnership, this covenant relationship between humanity and God, and ultimately through creation as well. But of course, what we saw was man sinned. Man broke the covenant. Man brought death and violence and evil, and ultimately, all of this, a rebellion into God's good world. And so we pick up, and we saw last week how ultimately we see Christ was the, the true image of God, the perfect image bearer, the one who restores the image. But we pick up now with that fall, and in the midst of the fall, we saw this promise as well, this promise of the seed, one born of Eve, one born of woman who would ultimately crush the serpent's head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your wonder and your kindness towards us. You are faithful, though we are so unfaithful. Lead us into your truth and change us and challenge us. But ultimately, give us life, a life that we can't find in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There is what I think is a pretty important city that most of you probably have never heard of. And when I'm going to say this name, you're going to kind of laugh. You're going to think it's hokey. You're going to think it's I'm just making something up, but it is, in fact, a real city. It is called Fordlandia, Fordlandia, as in Henry Ford, as in Ford Motor Company. And it is literally, it is a city that was founded by Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company in the Amazons of Brazil. This is, I'm not making this up, this is a true story. So they decided what happened is Henry Ford who, of course, always wanted to find the most efficient way to do things, uh, had an extreme uh, self-confidence in his ability to make things better and uh, to, to innovate and make things new within there. And so what he found, what he saw is he needed rubber. He needed a good supply of rubber. And he found that he didn't like the ways um, that, that rubber was coming to him. So he said, I'm just going to do this myself. And so he bought hundreds of thousands of acres in Brazil in the Amazon forest and decided that he would create his own um, rubber plantation. And so he bought, he planted rubber trees. He did it rather incompetently in the way he did it. He didn't actually consult with people. And so there's a lot of things that he did wrong in this. However, um, this wasn't just a let's find, let's build a factory that we often see. He decided what he would also do is he would set this up as a bit of a social experience, uh, excuse me, a social experiment as well. And so what he decided is in the midst of this factory, he would try to create his own little civilization. He would pour all his resources, his vast money into those resources, and what he believed was the best way to live life and do things. 
and, and see if he could create quite literally this human utopia that was started new, that was something that was fresh, that could kind of bypass the, the rot of what he saw in modern civilization of that time in the 1920s. And so he set this up and he poured all kinds of money into it. In addition to the, the, the plants, the trees that he set up, in addition to the factory to produce the rubber, he also set up, he brought in all kinds of, the, of his best employees to go down there to relocate and to make it uh, amenable to them. In the midst of this force, he, he put in uh, houses that would replicate what you would find in Detroit, the good houses. This was, you know, back when Detroit was nice. And so the good houses that you saw in there. And so in addition to houses, he said, I'm going to set up the best school. And he set up the best hospital of what was probably in the entire country. The, the, certainly it was the most modern hospital of that time in Brazil and would probably equal what you would find in the United States in many ways with its equipment. It had pools. It had a, a modern day golf course. It had, uh, and it even provided, uh, so it had free health care for all the employees who were there. It, had the, uh, it did its best to provide the best schooling, uh, golf course, amenities, free food within there, a cafeteria that served its own food. But here, things began rather quickly to go awry in the social experiment. Now, we would expect it would first to go awry on the business end, but that's not where it first began to go off the rails. Where it first began to go off the rails was actually socially. Because what Henry Ford tried to do is says, I'm going to take all of my values and impose them on this society. Both on the American workers that relocated there and the Brazilian natives who he was having come into there and, and kind of live within that uh, new city, this Fordlandia, this utopia. And surely he thought if he could bring his morality and shape the society in his image, this would go well. But the people very quickly rebelled for several reasons. Number one is Henry Ford was a vegetarian and he thought that was the most ethical and best way to do it. So they were all served. Again, all the food was provided. This was a vegetarian community within there. Secondly, he was an avid teetotaler, so no alcohol whatsoever. He was also very strict moral, so he wouldn't allow any kind of bars or brothels or anything like that to be able to infiltrate this, this society that he tried to keep this pure beacon of civilization separate from the rest of the world. What happened pretty quickly is the people didn't like that. They wanted their vices, and all of them. They wanted not only their meat, they wanted their alcohol, and they wanted their brothels. And so very quickly, they went on an outskirt island close by. They developed an island, in essence, of sin, where they could go and they can escape. And it became so punctuated at one point, they changed the food menu, and there became a riot that actually destroyed half the city. Just from that, that's how much of a powder keg this utopia became. In the end, it became such a fiasco and disaster that within all by the 1940s, so just a little bit over a decade, Ford had to acknowledge that the place was a complete disaster and would not work, and he ended up selling the entire property back to the Brazilian government at what would be a loss at that time of $20 million. That's a loss in the 1940s of $20 million, a loss that in today's economy would be above $200 million loss within that. You see, what Henry Ford and all of his humanism thought he could do is something that quite frankly, as much as we can kind of scoff at his hubris, is something that many of us think and believe on our own personal scale. That what really is wrong with the rest of society is the idiots in charge. What's really wrong with the rest of society is people aren't living life as if I was in charge. Because if I was in charge and everybody did what I wanted them to do, listen, folks, we would have peace on earth, right? If people would just listen to me, 
Heavens forbid, if I just had people in my own house listen to me, there would be peace on earth, it would seem, right? We'll bring out whether or not I believe you guys should listen to me here as a church, right? But here's the fundamental problem. We look at this and we we do, and especially as we run into these election cycles, we think, man, if we could just get the right government in place, we'll have utopia. Man, if we just get the right president, if we can just get the right senators, if we can just get the right democratic philosophy in place, we will have utopia. Now, I'm not saying that there are some that are better than others. I certainly think that is certainly the case. I think there are some that recognize the the truth of reality and some that are just plain silly. But for me to think that we can come in some way form a utopia, a man-made utopia, even if we start from scratch, is, to put it frankly, cuckoo bananas. It's silly. It's never going to work within there as it has been demonstrated from time and time and time again. Why? And there's a very fundamental reason a very, that is just so simple, but yet we so choke on. Why is it? Because we bring ourselves into the society every single time. As was famously illustrated, there was once a, uh, in, a, in a major British uh, newspaper asking the question, what is wrong with the world? And the ever-brilliant G.K. Chesterton submitted his, his intellect and his mind to the problem. And so he decided to submit his answer to this very deep question that the newspaper had asked. And so in his response, he said, and to your inquiry, what is the wrong with the world? The answer is, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? I am, Bo Sullivan, Arlington, Texas. What's wrong with the world? You guys are. Grace Covenant Church, Arlington, Texas. You see what we see going all the way back to Adam. We see a corruption within us. And so whereas God had created man in his image to fill the world with his image and with his glory, we find something rather ominous has taken place. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 6. Now, if we were to go back into Genesis chapter 4, we would find immediately the consequences of the sin is that you see brother against brother and ultimately leading to death. And you see this kind of a whole bunch of tragic stories of civilization being developed with this brokenness of humanity. And you end up with this genealogy in um, Genesis chapter 5. And Many of us, again, we look at these genealogies and are like, okay, time to skip that. Let's just move on. But they actually serve a purpose, and it's a very strong theological purpose because what you see constantly throughout Genesis chapter 5 is this constant refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death over and over again. Now, what we're doing in this series is called biblical theology. And so we're not, this is different than if I was just preaching a series through the book of Genesis, which is typically the sort of thing I would do, in which we would go verse by verse and we would cover all all the difficulties. But since we're doing a biblical theology, we're looking at a pretty broad scope, chapter six through nine, and including areas in the New Testament. So I simply don't have time to cover all of the many questions that we have about this flood narrative. So, for example, we're not going to deal with who the Nephilim are. Sorry. Um, We're moving on within that to cover the biblical theology of the covenant. And so we're picking up in chapter 6, verse 5, and says this. Now, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. In the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on, on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, verse 8, there's a great contrast here. One of the best words that we see in all of Scripture is that three-letter conjunction, B-U-T, but. Old Testament, New Testament, it's a glorious word. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what do we see in this? Well, what we see quite clearly is that as God looked out on creation, rather than seeing his image expanding and filling the world with his glory, what he saw was man expanding violence, expanding the kingdom of the serpent, not the kingdom of God within there. And so what we see, if we were to look into this, is that this Noah narrative actually looks back to the creation account. And so we're going to actually see how it postures itself uh, in conjunction with the, the Genesis account. And so I know this may seem a little pedantic, but let's just follow with me here. And I think you'll see, and I think it'll help us understand what's going on with Noah a whole lot more. So if we were to go back into creation, how did creation end in Genesis 1? Well, we see in Genesis 1.31, and the Lord saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Well, how does Genesis 6.5, how does this, this begin with us? And the Lord saw the wickedness of the man was great on the earth, and every intent of his thoughts on the, uh, of his heart was only evil continually. So you see that contrast there, what's happened. Well, let's go back a little bit. Well, before God said that it was good, we look at Genesis 1.26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But in the light of what he sees, we see in the next verse in, in Genesis 6, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Now, if you remember from, this, from the first Samuel series, when, the, when it says God regretted, that isn't saying God saying, boy, I wish I hadn't done this. This is, this is signaling a fundamental change in the relationship that is taking place. A fundamental posture that God is changing in the way he is in, going to interact with man in this moment, and specifically, and rather than breathing life into them and extending their life, he is going to bring forth judgment. Now, when it says that he is sorry, this isn't to say that God, um, again, God, the way uh, God has emotions is different than us. We bring all of our frailty and emotions, and, and the Bible uses what's called anthropomorphisms to, to, to help us communicate and be able to relate to God through our own limitations of human language. And so we need to be careful that we don't read our own emotions and the way we process things onto God. However, some people take that too far and, and try to say, well, there's no uh, emotions at all to God, so to speak. And I disagree with that um, in the standpoint of there is a sense in which God portrays himself persona, uh, from the standpoint of things matter to him. Let me put it that way. These things matter to him. He's not indifferent to it, right? And so what you see is he saw, sees that everything's evil. Um, he looks at what he had made in man's God's, in God's image, and he's going to say, I'm going to change the relationship. Now, if we go back before that in Genesis 1.21, um, and so God created the great sea creatures and everything living, the creatures that move with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. However, if we continue on in Genesis 7, the next verse, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created in the face of the land with, with <clears throat> and the animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
So what do we see that is being shown right here? What you see is God is unraveling all of creation in the exact reverse order of which he created it. This is an exact reversal that is taking place in light of the sin that is taking place. God is looking at it and saying, I will not tolerate what is being done to my good creation. This is his right. Now, we sometimes can bristle with that aspect in our day and age of judgment. At least we bristle with it when it's God. However, our own society, when we look at its appeal and its longing for justice, actually betrays our own hearts that we actually long for this type of justice. We actually long for God to make things right. The problem in our society isn't that we don't like justice. It's just we try to divorce justice from God. And that has created chaos in its way. God looks at creation and says, this is, this is evil. This is wrong. This is a, almost a, so imperfect an illustration that it's, I almost hate to use it. But I, many of you know, I, I, one of my great hobbies and loves is fountain pens. I, it's you know, one of those quirky, nerdy things that I love, right? And so many years ago, when I was a much, much more limited budget, I was given this very nice fountain pen. It was a gift from my mother a beautiful fountain pen uh, that I could have never have afforded on my own. And so I had it at my desk, and in that time, I shared an office with the children's director of that church. Now, so we were in my office, and I had my beautiful fountain pen. Hadn't really had it that long. And I had my moleskin out, or moleskin A, if you want to be proper, my notebook out, right? And so in my calendar that was there, and I had to leave the office for something very quick. Well, as I come back into the office, the children's director's son has in my chair on my desk with my fountain pen holding it like this and doing this right here all over it. This was evil! <laughs> and so I look at it and I'm like, oh, your child is evil! What are you doing? And so I grab my, I, I get my fountain pen and let me just say this is another thing about repentance because there was no repentance at all. But we're moving on. <laughs> but in this fountain pen, if you know anything about fountain pens, their nibs can be pretty sensitive. And this nib was broken beyond repair. And so now, as I look at this pen, now I was able to buy a new nib and everything. There was a cost to it. Every time I look at that pen, my mind goes back to the injustice and to the evil that was done, right? God looks at the evil that's done and remembers this was his creation. Judgment is to be enacted. But yet, despite the reality, and if we gotta be honest, if we gotta be impartial, we gotta say, God is right. God is right to do this. What is astounding in this passage isn't that God acts with judgment. What is astounding in this passage is verse eight. What is astounding is verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, first off, which came first? Verse 8 preceded verse 9. The grace of God, the favor of God preceded verse 9, where Noah was a righteous man. Now, to say that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless, that he walked with God, doesn't mean that he was without sin. In fact, we're going to see quite clearly here in a little bit, he was. He was every bit as affected by sin as everybody else. But there was a grace, there was a faith in the living God that gave him a, for, a, a Godward orientation in his heart that God declared as righteous. There was a faith that God saw that God declared as righteous. But grace came 
first within that. And so what we see in this Noahic covenant, which is the very first covenant that is explicitly called a covenant, Barret, if you remember that correctly, we see it bookends this entire narrative in, in the beginning of it in chapter 6 and verse 18 and at the very end of it in chapter 9. Both times God says, I'm going to form a covenant with you. And so we see it for the first time in verses 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring the flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. So in other words, where we see God in his grace, this God who finds mercy, this, that is what's so astounding. He says, I'm gonna destroy the world, but because of my grace, I have a place, a safety a place that I am going to provide for you. If you by faith will trust in my salvation in this ark, you will be saved. And of course, we know the story. I find it very odd that we love to decorate children's nurseries with this story. With all these little animals around, it's a scene of utter destruction. Now, a little bit of an aside, I know some people struggle with this particular narrative, but what you see in throughout civilizations is there's a flood narrative, there's a flood story. And as my, I had a very liberal professor at Oklahoma State University when I took uh, ancient Near East class uh, on focusing on Samaria, he was very liberal, he was a liberal Catholic, and he himself said, look, don't let this shake your faith. And he said, this actually promotes, this happened. Every civilization has a flood narrative. This happened. So that's an aside, but what you see, once again, if we look back and we're reminded of what takes place, all of, all of creation is destroyed except that which is in the ark. Now, if we look back, we're reminded of what God did in creating the world. Now, we've already saw that he's essentially been uncreating the world that has taken place. But what we find in chapter 8 is God is going to be in the process of recreating the world. And this is very, very clearly shown literarily. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit, that's the Hebrew word there, ruah, right, is hovering over the face of the waters. Well, what we find in Genesis chapter 8, we see God remembered Noah, right? God remembers. God, man forgets God, but God is the faithful covenant partner. He remembers Noah. And then it says, and God made a wind, the Hebrew word there, ruah, to blow over the earth and the water subsided. And so what you see the beginning of creation, the ruah, going over the watery chaos. God deciding to remember Noah. You see he ascends his ruah to go over and blow the watery chaos within there. As it continues on, what you see in the creation account, clearly seen in 7-8, you see the separation of the waters in the sky. You see immediately following the Ruah, you see the separation once again. The water is no longer going to be coming from the sky. In verse 9, what you see is land appears, is separated. You see the oceans begin to separate. What immediately follows in Genesis chapter 3, you see, I'm not going to read it all, but the mountains begin, the tops of the mountains appear, so you begin to see the separation of the land and the ocean. In Genesis 20, you see the birds begin flying across the horizon, what immediately takes place next. Noah begins sending out the raven and the dove to fly across the creation, across the horizon. <clears throat> and then what you begin to see in Genesis 1.20, uh, in day six, creation, the creatures begin to swarm and, uh, across, um, <clears throat> across the earth. <clears throat> Picked on the wrong slide, excuse me. Uh, the livestock, all the things according to their kinds, begin to creep and swarm upon the earth. And then in chapter, in verse 17, 
God calls them to bring out all of you flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth. And so what you see is all these literary, the, the language and the words used are not accidental. They're all intentional to show what God is doing here is recreating the first six days of creation in this account. Now, what you see is even more interesting, what happened with man. In the image of God, verse 28, God blessed them, that's referring to Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Now, what you see is Noah, in essence, as we've already seen, he is kind of the new Adam. And so you see in his, he is going to now get this commission from God in Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah, you see the exact same wording, and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast upon the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand, they are delivered. And every moving thing that lives uh, shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. So he's saying, I am putting the world in you, for you to subdue and to have dominion upon it. And so you see he is presented here as this new Adam that's taking place. Now, What happens is God creates this covenant with them. And in this covenant, this Noahic covenant, we see God now says life is valuable. And so he puts restrictions on how we are to eat animals. So we're not to eat animals with blood. Blood represents life. And so there's this sense of recognizing the life of the animal, having value for life. And then he puts a great deal of emphasis on not having murder, that you're not to kill another human being because that other human being is made in the image of God. But then what he does is he does something interesting. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign of this covenant is going to be what we would call the rainbow. Now, the Hebrew doesn't actually use the word rainbow. The word that is used in the Hebrew is the same word that would be used for an archer's bow, specifically an archer's bow of military use within there. And so what many scholars, not all, there's actually a lot of disagreement about this, say, and we look at what God is saying is his commitment that he will not destroy the world again by flood. Now, that doesn't mean he's not committed to bring judgment to this world as we see in Revelation. He will bring about ultimate judgment to sin and to take back that which is his. But we have this confidence God is not going to destroy the world again this way. And the sign of this with this archer's bow, and if you have this archer's bow, where do you want this pointed? Not towards you. Where is this bow pointed? Towards God, towards the heavens. God is saying, I am gonna hold myself responsible for the upkeeping of this covenant. What is, in a covenant, typically if one breaks the covenant, the stipulations is that the curses become upon that person. We know that we are sinful. We're gonna break this covenant. And we have. We do not value the life of creation. We do not value the life of one another. We're, ours is a world filled with murder. But yet, the stipulations are pointed towards God. We'll talk more about the implications of that here in a minute. What we see in this is God saying, I'm going to take the punishment of this covenant upon myself. Now, if we look back to chapter, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, this is immediately following, right after Noah gets off, we see this. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, as I read this, I'm thinking, huh? How does this make sense? He says, I'm not going to strike down this world because of man. But I see what's in man's heart and it's evil all the time, 24-7. What? I see that man is going to break this. They're going to be just as evil as they were. Everyone's been wiped out except Noah. He seems to be a pretty swell dude. But yet he looks and he knows what's inside the heart of man. He says, but I'm not going to do this. Why? Let me suggest to you the reason why comes back to the sacrifice. Now, did this sacrifice, does, did God say, boy, you know what? I really liked the smell of that burnt animal. So I think I'm going to change my mind about my whole judgment and everything like that. No. The Bible makes that very clear. This was pleasing to the Lord. What is the connection between this and is showing mercy on a human creation? And here is what I believe is going on. God is looking at this as a foreshadow of what he will do in Christ. The sacrifice and the atoning sacrifice that will be made in Christ for evil humanity is the reason why he says, I am going to show mercy on this evil creation that is man. Now, this story does not end with a happy ending because just as we said with Fordlandia, humanity itself cannot make a utopian civilization. For all Noah has seen, at the end of the day, we would say, surely he's going to be this promised seed. I mean, after all, keep in mind, put yourself in the place of you've never read the Bible. You don't know anything about God or Christianity or Jesus. You have picked up this mysterious book, the Bible, and you've never heard anything about it in any way, shape, or form, and you just begin reading from Genesis, and you've read this Genesis, and you've read that there's this promise of the seed that's gonna come from the, the seed of woman. And as you read in Genesis chapter five in this, in this uh, genealogy, you see Noah's son, Noah, this man, Noah comes from this father named Lamech. And when Noah is born, he's given this name Noah, which means rest. That's the Hebrew word rest. And Lamech says this, maybe he will be the one who will give us rest. <gasps> we're reading in this and we're thinking, oh, this is the promised seed. This is the seed we've been waiting for. And then we see that he is the one who is faithful to build the ark. We're thinking, this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. We're going to have this resolution that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Hmm, what's the rest of this book about? I don't know, because it seems like it's wrapping itself up pretty quick. But then we reach Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. What do we see? A man began, and Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So in other words, we've already seen he's this new Adam. What does he do? He plants a garden. <gasps> That's a pretty good start. And he drank of the wine, uh-oh, and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tents. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. So what do you see? Adam, just like Adam, he's got a garden. Just like Adam, he abuses the garden, and the results is he finds himself naked and ashamed, creating ultimately a barrier between his sons. 
and the cycle continues. This isn't the promised seed. For he is just as much broken as Adam. What we need is something different. Now, last week, as I looked at Adam, we, we saw how in Adam, we saw this all pointing to Christ as he is the image of God, the perfect image bearer. He is the one who is perfectly faithful within there. Now, because Noah is in many ways a reconstitution of Adam, all of those same um, uh, images, all those same foreshadowings would consider themselves the same in Christ. So we could really just kind of repeat all of them. I'm not, don't worry, for the same thing. But what we see here is something else that's also needed. You see, last week, what I emphasized is one of the glorious parts of Christmas that we often neglect and don't see is the reality that Christ came and was born of a virgin. He was God who took on human flesh, enabling himself to be this new Adam. But we need, we see here, this can't just be someone who is only of the flesh as well. And this is the other glorious part of Christmas that we see. Not only was this a baby that was born that was special, this was a baby that was born that was both fully man, but also fully God. Who was not affected by the curse. This is something that is in and of itself new creation, something new. Now, let me be very explicit here. I'm not saying Christ was created. Christ is eternal. But in the, in the incarnation, this was something new. This is a second Adam that now does not have a sin nature. And as we continue on in Scripture, last week, if you remember, a key Scripture we looked at was Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, we saw how Paul was bringing out this glory, the fact that in Christ what we have is this new Adam who reverses the effects of sin. That just as much as all the sin and death came through our first Adam, how much more through the new Adam will life come? But if we were to, to move back up into that passage, into the same chapter in chapter 5, we see how Christ was able to bring about this transformation. Not only to say, wow, look at Christ. Isn't he great? He is the second Adam. Boy, I wish I could be like him. How, in essence, can we have that same righteousness? How can that righteousness of the second Adam become us? When the fact that is that we are like Noah, we are like Adam, we are sinful. And the answer is this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, in other words, while we were just like Noah, while we were just like Adam, each and every one of us, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners. In other words, while we are a people who deserve this judgment, every bit, every bit as much as those who we read about, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have received reconciliation. What do we see that is so wonderful and marvelous? 
Not only was Christ this new Adam, but Christ took upon himself the judgment upon sin. In essence, Christ is not only the new Adam, but he's also the ark. And as we place ourselves in him, he is the one who weathered the judgment of God in his perfect righteousness so that we could become safe. But there's something even more glorious in this. Because not only did he take on our judgment for sin, he made us new. He changes our nature. As we die with him, we become raised with him. In other words, he gives us his righteousness. But before that comes about, there must be a reckoning with our judgment. There's another society that was in chaos that said we need to become a new society. It was South Africa. And they were reeling from years of, of, of racial injustice, apartheid. And they began wanting to make this change, but the, they began saying, hey, something needs for us to be able to change and to make this flip into civilization. We can't just ignore what has happened. And so they came up and they were led by a theologian, Desmond Tutu, in this, in this reconciliation commission to say, for us to move forward, we need to have both this radical forgiveness, but we also have to have an acknowledgement of the wrong that has taken place. And that's exactly what they did. For radical forgiveness, there, there, there could be placed, but there had to be an admittance of, an, of, of, of evil. There had to be an, an admittance of guilt that had taken place. And while imperfect, because it was humanity, it ultimately was one of the most successful human endeavors in, in our modern history. For us to receive this gift of forgiveness, for us to be made new, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to acknowledge our brokenness. We need to acknowledge what we deserve because of that sin. A lot of times, as we move into Christmas, as the older I get, the less I'm thinking about in Christmas what I receive, right? When you're a kid, it's all about, what do I get? What do I want? What is the presence for me, right? As you get older, Christmas, you, get the, you lose that excitement for Christmas, and it becomes more about, as the commercials like to say, how to win Christmas by getting gifts for other people. What the gospel calls us to do is to go back to have the posture of a child. To look and to say, I need this gift. I have to have this gift of forgiveness. And to ultimately believe that we can receive it. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've paid for it. I was, I was at the Grand Prix Mall and they have done something that is borderline diabolical. They put in this pet shop that is filled with puppies that you can buy. And they're pretty expensive. And I happened to walk in, and what do you think I saw? Kids pleading for a puppy for their parents. <gasps> can I please have this? I heard one girl say, I'll, I'll give you my cell phone. I'll and she was just listing all the things that she would give up to get this puppy. Right? And a lot of times we believe that if we, when we come to God, that's exactly what God's trying to say. Now, let me be clear. God is calling us to put aside the, the lifestyle that we've had, no doubt. But ultimately, we receive his gift of grace simply by receiving it. By acknowledging, I can never pay God back. I can never do anything to earn this. There's no chores that I could do to pay God, to make myself to deserve this. There's no kind acts of generosity. There's no amount of money I could put into the plate. 
There's no commitment of making sure I would never miss any of Pastor Bo's sermons ever again. Number one, we're going to break them. As I fully expected that if that parent called that kid to, to give up her cell phone, that eventually she's going to want another phone. God committed his love towards us that while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile to God, he died for us. It is a gift of grace. Are you willing to receive that gift of grace by faith this morning? Of not anything you've done, but only what Christ has done. And this is where you see the goodness of God as this points to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. If you want to find it and how you can try to build yourself or make something new of yourself, forget it. That story ends badly. But there's a glorious another telling of another community of disciples who are a bunch of mess-ups, illustrated by this mess-ups all over the place, but they encountered a risen Savior and they received this gift of salvation and ultimately the spirit of a new, new creation. And they ended up forming this new community of believers that you find in Acts chapter four that were so profoundly made new, they sold everything to give to one another. And though they were persecuted, and though they were slandered, and though they lost so much, the newness of their life was so intoxicating it turned the world upside down. This is what new life does. The question becomes, will we be a community of that new life or simply a people who are trying to make things new in our own power, trying to create our own little Fordlandias? Won't you trust and receive the free gift of God today? Father, we thank you for your love, for your goodness. We thank you for those three-letter words. Though we have sinned, but your grace is there. Though we are a hostile enemy to you, but... By grace, we have been saved through faith. Guide us and direct us in our spirit that we might completely and totally rely on Jesus this morning for our salvation, to make us new. Acknowledging our need for a savior, but ultimately also acknowledging the provision of the ark of Christ that is ours by faith, that it is sufficient, that it will Save us and give us the faith to trust in him today. In Jesus' name, amen.